Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. A doxology, that's an expression of praise to God. It's usually, but not always, in the form of a short hymn that is sung as part of a Christian worship service. Chapter 11 closes with what many call a doxology, and it is, although I think we should hear it as more spontaneous. Uh, Doxology is one of those words that gives you, I, I don't know, to me, it gives me the impression a guy was you know, writing it for years and years and years. I just see Paul breaking forth into spontaneous praise. It's sort of like when a worship leader or songwriter gets a lyric directly and immediately from the Lord. I think we saw a video last week or two weeks ago where uh, Paul Balash was talking about how at uh, one of his concerts the Lord just put a chorus on his heart. And so Paul here, the apostle, he's the author obviously, he's overwhelmed by what he'd written thus far in Romans under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit and he exploded into this doxology. He was thinking back not just over chapter 11 or even chapters 9, 10, and 11, but over the entire first 11 chapters. And this is a good place for a song, too, in that it ends part one of Romans, uh, the doctrinal section, and it anticipates the remaining chapters, which are more about the practice of the Christian life in the church and in the world. So if, if Paul was doing a, you know, if it was modern day and he was at the Marriott doing a, a Bible seminar, uh, you know, he'd get through the first 11 chapters and then uh, he, it would be a natural break where they'd sing a song and get a donut and then come back and uh, hang out for chapters 12 through 16, which uh, the topics change dramatically there to more practical Christian living. And so in verse 33... Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The riches Paul had in mind, he identifies as the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now, we're not told specifically what wisdom or knowledge Paul meant. William MacDonald has written a pretty reliable Bible commentary called the Believer's Bible Commentary. We like it. He makes this general observation. He says, this concluding doxology looks back over the entire epistle and the divine wonders that have been unfolded. Paul has expounded the marvelous plan of salvation by which a just God can save ungodly sinners and still be just in doing it. He has shown how Jesus Christ's work brought more glory to God and more blessing to men than Adam lost through his sin. He has explained how grace produces holy living in a way that law could never do. He has traced the unbreakable chain of God's purpose from foreknowledge to eventual glorification. He has set forth the doctrine of sovereign election and the companion doctrine of human responsibility. And he has traced the justice and harmony of God's dispensational dealings with Israel and the nations. Now nothing could be more appropriate than to burst forth in a hymn of praise and worship. Uh, And so I think MacDonald has hit it on the head there, as you see, all that we've gone through uh, so far in the book of Romans. Now, though God has revealed all this and more, it says his judgments remain unsearchable. By the way, all of this is being said by Paul, who's really a brilliant guy, who, who uh, has a mind to figure things out and to understand things and certainly to explain things uh, about the Lord and about his salvation. But he says his judgments are unsearchable. Now, unsearchable means they cannot be fully comprehended. 
It doesn't mean you can't find them. It means you just can't always fully comprehend them. You should keep searching them out, but they will always be deeper than you can fathom. As for his judgments, Albert Barnes writes, in the case before us, this means his arrangement for conferring the gospel on people. In other words, uh, it's how people get saved. Now, salvation is a simple enough arrangement between God and man, is it not? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, We often talk about how that even children at a very young age can understand that there's a God, that they are sinners, and, and they can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a difficult Uh, kind of thing at all. But when we start peeling back the layers, when we start looking at the moment that salvation occurs in a heart, it remains in many ways unsearchable. For example, think of all the arguing that still surrounds God's foreknowledge, God's election, God's predestination. All of these are critical to the salvation of a soul, but they cannot be fully comprehended or we would have an agreement among Orthodox believers. Those of you who are interested in these topics, you know that there's no lack of disagreement as to exactly how these things take place. And so a person can get saved in a moment, in an instant, and and, and, and it's, it's really quite simple. It's a divine transaction, obviously. It's a divine appointment, but, but it can happen Uh, very simply, and and you don't have to be a theologian or a scholar in order to explain the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You just need to be a Christian uh, and and have experienced this transaction yourself. Uh, Very simple, uh, but at the same time, unsearchable when you start to get deep into it. Now, not everyone would agree that these things cannot be fully comprehended, There are those who think they know exactly how these things work to accomplish salvation of a sinner. I suggest that if you think or if I think I've got God all figured out in these areas, I'm more than slightly arrogant. Uh, I'm sorry, I just feel that way, that it's, 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 anybody that tells you they've got God all figured out, um, just evangelize them because they may not know the Lord. A theologian I've been reading lately made the following suggestion. He was discussing the arguing that exists between two particular schools of systematic theology. Uh, We normally call them Calvinism and Arminianism. He said this. He's an Arminian, by the way. He said, both Calvinists and Arminians should admit the weaknesses of their own theologies and not pretend that the other one alone contains tensions, inconsistencies, difficulties explaining biblical passages and mysteries. Uh, and and I, I have to agree with that. Uh, if you study these things out, uh, any, man, any man-made system of theology has certain inconsistencies, certain mysteries, certain uh, uh, tensions that uh, they can't account for. And that's what I think Paul is talking about here. He says some things are just unsearchable. You can only go so far in searching them out in your finite mind. And that's why I like what J.B. Phillips said when he said, if God was small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. And that's a great statement. Uh, And so uh, 
I hope this isn't discouraging anybody from a deeper study of the Word. In fact, it should encourage you to continue to search these things out, uh, but it should set you free uh, to know that there are certain things that um, are probably going to remain somewhat unsearchable. If, they, if Paul the Apostle, who's explaining all this to us, could say there are unsearchable mysteries of God, then there are. Topics like foreknowledge and election and predestination, they are important. We talk about them. And so what approach should we take to these when faced with a difficulty or a mystery or a seeming inconsistency? What side should we fall out on or what should we cling to? Well, I think we should choose according to what we know to be true about God's nature and character. And so we, we shouldn't ever come to a conclusion in our system or in our thinking that undermines something that we know to be absolutely true. If our conclusions are contrary to the nature and character of God, for example, if they make God seem less loving, then they're wrong conclusions. A system of theology that works only if I must surrender aspects of God's revealed nature or certain definite attributes of God, that's just bad theology, no matter how much you think uh, it works among itself. And so uh, there are some things that I know about God that are not, uh, they're deep and they're, they're unfathomable, but they're not unsearchable. And so, uh, you know, if God says that he is love, uh, he is truth, he is these things, uh, then I can't come to conclusions where God would be less than loving. Uh, I can't postulate or systematize something so that God turns out to be a monster or, a, or, or some, someone that is showing a, a kind of love that is worse than even human love. And so uh, when you do study these things and you think, well, I want to get to the bottom of this, uh, at least pick a theology, pick a system that uh, upholds the nature and the character of God that you know to be true. Now, it says here, his ways are past finding out. We're generally to know God's ways. They are grace and mercy and forgiveness and love and acceptance and the like. So when I hear the phrase, the ways of God, I, I think of what Gail Irwin calls the Jesus style, uh, you know, where, where you look at the Lord Jesus Christ and you think, well, how did, how did Jesus uh, act in certain situations? How did he act in general? What was his behavior? And I can see that that, that is the way of God. And so when I get, you know, get into my life and I'm dealing with people or situations, I think, okay, uh, how much grace is here? How much mercy am I extending? Where's the forgiveness? Where's the love? Uh, those kinds of things, because those are the ways of God. There are the ways of man, things that I would rather do most of the time, you know, uh, in terms of being impatient or angry or overbearing or, you know, those kinds of things. Everybody has their own uh, personality in terms of where you default when, <clears throat> you know, you're dealing with a difficult person or a difficult situation, uh, you know, whether you become overbearing or whether you just withdraw and tune out or something like that. And so the ways of God would be to, you know, the, to look at Jesus and think, you know, they're, you know, Jesus, when he was tired, he still talked to people. When he was, you know, he didn't seem to grow too impatient except with the money changers. And, uh, you know, of course, Christians always want to go right to that, you know, to justify their anger all the time. Well, you know, Jesus overturned those tables. He, and you know, okay. Yeah, when's the last time you ran into a money changer in the temple in Jerusalem that was turning the house of prayer into the, you know, a house of thieves? I, I mean, it just, you know, certainly there's a place for, uh, you know, 
a divine anger, I suppose, but it's usually not where you and I are, you know, exposing it. Uh, and so I, we know the ways of the Lord. By, that's why we study the life of Jesus, and we're always looking for Jesus in every passage because uh, ultimately what the Christian life is about is God changing us from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. We're being, that's our true predestination. Once we're saved, God says, now you are destined to become like Christ. And he works on us in and through our life and its circumstances until one day he takes us home, either at death or through the rapture, and he completes that good work that he has begun in us. And so those are the ways of God that we know. But Paul is talking about ways that are past finding out. And here I would talk about how God moves the entire universe, in a sense, in order to accomplish his purposes for your life and for my life, that is really past finding out. How what we look at in the world as a chance circumstance or a happenstance is really God's providence uh, bringing us to a certain place at a certain time, at a certain moment in time, to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, for example. There, all of us have experienced divine appointments if we're Christians. So the time you got saved, it was a divine appointment. You didn't have it on your Google calendar. It didn't pop up on your phone. Getting saved in 10 minutes, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but God had made an appointment with you, with uh, another person or with a tract or uh, with a movie or at a church service or something like that. And, it'd be, and then looking back, you, you say, oh, I see how I was led to this place right here, right now, to this person, to this exact moment. We've also experienced that after we're saved. Uh, many times, you know, perhaps you start to backslide into sin and God will bring something in your life, a person who, uh, you know, begins to speak with you or some situation. And so uh, God, in, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing uh, that, that he can multitask in that way. God is the original multitasker. He's got the whole world to, to deal with. He holds it in the span of his hand, as it were, and keeps it running and glued together. And then he's moving all of these pieces so that he can minister to you at a unique moment in time. Uh, think Joseph in the Old Testament, if you want an example of God's providence. Who could find out God's plan to save the children of Israel from extinction by a famine that was yet future by using the wrath of Joseph's brothers to praise him. I mean, the story of Joseph is an amazing story, really. It's, it defies uh, anything else in literature. It's, it's amazing. But it's not just about, you know, God using the wrath of Joseph's brothers to, uh, you know, turn all that around and teach you some nice lessons about family and all that. God literally saved the nation of Israel from extinction during a famine that had struck the land by providing for them through Joseph. And so before any of that ever happened, before it was even thought about, God had this, put this plan in place, and we see it unfolding, and 
God does it in such a way that he doesn't even violate the free will of the men involved and the people involved. He's overruling this plan, but he lets everybody be a free moral agent within it, accomplishing his purposes, getting Joseph thrown into a pit, then sold to the Ishmaelites, then in Potiphar's house, then in a prison, and then before the Pharaoh, and then second in command in the Egyptian government storing food, and then the famine comes, and then Joseph's brothers are sent to Egypt looking for food. And eventually, he reveals himself to them, uh, and they move to Goshen, uh, where they're taken care of and where they begin to multiply. Uh, And, you know, the indication is they would have died if that hadn't happened. They would have died out. There were, I think, only 70 of them. And, you say, and, and then you add to that how precious those 70 individuals were because all of the promises of God for all of the ages were wrapped up in those people and in their preservation. And, and so God moved heaven and earth to preserve those people. It's, it's pretty amazing. So that's what Paul is talking about, those kinds of things. Let me add something to this. I, I hope you'll understand this. I don't Maybe I don't know if I understand it perfectly enough to, to explain it, but if God's ways are past finding out, at least some of them, then we should stop trying to discover the definite final outcome of every circumstance we are in. The story of Joseph doesn't teach us that we will always see or know the final outcome. It establishes that God always has a final outcome and that he who has begun a good work in us will most definitely complete us, or complete it and complete us. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we have the story of Joseph uh, and it teaches us that God is a God of providence, that he's watching over his creation and his creatures. All things work together for good, that kind of thing. But it doesn't mean that in this life we are all going to have the awareness that Joseph had of exactly what God had been doing. And the only reason I mention this is because, especially I've noticed in the last several years, maybe the last decade, it's become very important to people to come to a definite conclusion about what God is doing in their life, as if, if they can't, then God may not be doing it and it may not be meaningful. And I don't know that we can ever say that we're at the point of the end of the thing that God is doing. And and so uh, I think we need to learn to be content and to walk by faith and to know that all things work together for good, but we're not sure what that working together for good is right now. And I think for some of us, for some of you, we won't know until we get to heaven. And and, uh, I, I think some people... They struggle in their walk and with their faith because they're always looking for the conclusion. They want the lesson. We used to, I know when I was a young Christian, it was kind of the idea was that God has a lesson to teach you. And nine weeks later, if you're on the quarter system or 15 weeks later, if you're on the semester system, you graduate from that lesson and then you move on to the next one and the next one and it's piecemeal. And I don't think that's always, sometimes that's true, but a lot of times, Things are just going on in your life and you have no idea what God is doing, but you know that God is doing it because you do have Joseph to look back on. You think, well, okay, Lord, you know, I feel like I'm in a pit right now. I feel like I've, I'm in a slave caravan. I feel like I'm in a, a, you know, a household where I'm being abused. I feel like I'm in prison. 
Uh, there's a Joseph experience here somewhere, but I, I don't know that I'm going to uh, get to it before I see you. Uh, and, and so we just need to be, I think, a little bit more realistic. I just finished a little book that was an apologetic about God allowing suffering in the world, sometimes even on a massive scale. The author's conclusion was, and I quote, our faith is in a God who has come to rescue his creation from the absurdity of sin, the emptiness and waste of death, the forces that shatter souls. Until that final glory, however, the world remains divided between two kingdoms, where light and darkness, life and death grow up together and await the harvest. In such a world, our portion is love, and our sustenance is faith, and so it will be until the end of these days. Reading between the lines, one of the things I think he was saying is that things won't always make Joseph-like sense to us this side of eternity, and there will be things that are past our finding out. But praise the Lord, we have found the Lord, and he has found us, and that is sufficient. Now, Paul thought this praiseworthy rather than a complaint. Remember, this is a doxology of praise. Paul wasn't complaining, saying that you know, there's things that I can't fathom about God and there's some unsearchable things. And, you know, he wasn't upset because his circumstances were negative. He was excited about the fact that God was bigger than anything that he was going through. And so in verse 34, he said, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? This verse is a quotation uh, with a slight change from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13 where it says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor taught him. The Lord has revealed his mind to us to the extent he is able and we have need. He told the Jews, for example, that his thoughts towards them were thoughts of peace and not evil to give them an expected end. That's one of our favorite verses from Jeremiah 29, 11. And so we know what God thinks about us. <clears throat> Nevertheless, God's mind is mostly unknown to me insofar as exactly what I am experiencing will bring uh, me to the expected end of being conformed into the image of Jesus. I can't make the connections between his providence and my maturity all the time. I don't really understand my trials and exactly how they are tailored to my spiritual growth. I mean, if you've come through a trial, can you honestly say you know everything about what God was doing in that trial? I mean, you can see God was working in it and, and bringing you through it and developing certain things, uh, but you don't know all that it accomplished. As a brand new Christian, I came across, uh, across Edith Schaefer's description of these kinds of unknown things. She compared the various events of our entire life to a beautiful tapestry that God was working on. How many of you heard this tapestry illustration before? It's pretty famous. And um, some of you ladies, and some of you guys, uh, who do this kind of, you know, tapestry work, um, you know, uh, you, 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 we've see, we always see these things, you know, you see them at the fair, or in your house, or needlepoint, cross-stitch, you know, that kind of thing. They're really beautiful. But Edith Schaefer was saying, that's, God is working on that beautiful tapestry that is your life, but you're seeing it as it were from the earth, and so you see the back of it. You see the threads that are in the back of that tapestry. Have you ever looked at one of those things from behind? It's, it's crazy nutty. You can't figure out what it is. And depending on what, how, what kind of a neat freak you are in terms of your, you know, tapestry making, there's threads that are just jumbled and, you know, and you think, well, nobody's going to see that, so what's the difference as long as it looks beautiful on the front side? And, and Schaefer was saying, hey, your life is going to look like a, 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 the back side of a tapestry, until you, God's done, and he reveals what he's been knitting. 
what he's been cross-stitching. And then you're going to see how beautiful it is and how every thread is precisely where it needs to be. Uh, and I think that's the kind of thing Paul is talking about. He's saying that God is, God is too big for us to know every beautiful thing that he's planning for us and doing uh, in our lives. It says, who has become his counselor? Obviously, no one should presume to counsel the Lord. I have to admit, sometimes in my praying, I'm counseling the Lord. And I've heard a lot of prayers uh, of, you know, from people who counsel God uh, and uh, just tell God what he should do in uh, certain situations. And it's, it's kind of comical. It's easier to recognize in others, of course, than in yourself. But we all do this. Uh, why say this here, though, since it uh, doesn't seem to fit? Well, it reminds me that his mind towards me is set. He doesn't need direction from anyone as to how to bring about what is best for me. I, I'm not an experiment to God. There's not a trial and error going on in my life. Only trials when necessary to bring me to the expected end. And so no one needs to counsel God about how to work in my life. Uh, and he's not trying different things to, you know, as if we were an experiment, like, you know, little boys with bugs. I wonder if this bug, can this bug fly with one wing? No, let's, let's note that, uh, you know, until you've got no wings and one leg left, you know. I mean, God's not experimenting to see what might happen. He's a careful craftsman, uh, and so he doesn't need any counsel to figure out how to get me to the place where I look like Jesus Christ. The God who saved me is busy sanctifying me, and he will one day glorify me. Verse 35, who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him, God was not in debt to us. We added nothing to him. He didn't need us. He chose to create us, to enjoy fellowship with us, but all the initiative was always his. I mean, sometimes we think of Adam in the garden. Adam, you know, God looked at him and he says, Adam, it's not good that you're alone. Everything else is good, but it's not good that you're alone. And I think sometimes if we're not careful, we think sometimes about God that he was lonely, that it wasn't good that he was alone, and so he decided to make us so that, you know, we could have fellowship with him. And that's not the way it is. God is sufficient in and of himself. He needs nothing. We add nothing to him. But he desired to have fellowship with us. It's a, he wanted to love us and, and be loved in return. Uh, and, so, you know, we add nothing to him, but we're valuable to him. He even took a big risk, if I can say that, without diminishing anything about God. Creating us with free will risked the ruin of creation through the fall of man. It didn't take long for Adam and Eve to fall and ruin everything that God had made. Uh, did you ever wonder how long they were in the garden before they did that? I sort of think it was like as soon as God pointed out the tree, you know, just, you know, really that tree? Let's go check that out. Because that's what you and I would do. I mean, of course, I don't know what I would do if I was, you know, didn't have a sin nature uh, to begin with, you know, but... But there was a certain curiosity, obviously, because the devil was already, if I get the story right, it seems like when the devil tempted Eve, they, she was already at the tree, you know, he was talking about the, but, but you know, at any rate, uh, God took that risk, from our point of view, a risk, obviously, from his point of view, he knew what he was doing, uh, and created a being with free will who could make a real choice because love requires choice. And Adam and Eve and us in Adam and Eve, we ruined the world. We ruined it. Do you ever tell your kids, now it's ruined? 
I can't think of a specific example, but sometimes your kids, you know, you say, hey, don't touch that. And they touch it. They do something. It's ruined. It can't be fixed. Uh, but, uh, you know, God came in and he said, hey, it's ruined and I'm going to fix it. And, and that's the unfolding drama of redemption as God is fixing what man ruined until it is restored. Verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. All things must refer to everything that is not God and therefore mean his created universe. Certainly creation is of him in the sense that he is the creator. Creation is through him in the sense that he still sustains all things by his power. Creation is to him in the sense that it exists to bring him glory forever. We certainly see creation bringing God glory forever and eternity, but how does it do so right now in its fallen state? Well, at the heart of the gospel, of course, there's a triumphalism, a conviction that the will of God cannot ultimately be defeated and that the victory over evil and death has already been won. Example, in Colossians 2.15, it says, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Earlier, Paul wrote that though all creation groans, it anticipates the revealing of the sons of God, meaning us in our final glorified bodies in eternity. Uh, and so, uh, Paul just, he just busts out in praise. He, you know, he just, the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write. He's gotten to the end of this doctrinal section, one of the most uh, concise yet beautiful doctrinal books of the entire Bible where he's explained so much about salvation and the plan of salvation from creation to creation and dispensationalism, all the things that we looked at, and then he just busts into praise and he says it's all in him and through him and for him. Amen. All right? 